Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Blockchain Advisor. Today, we have with us Steve Givett. Steve was already larger-than-life trader and personality when I began in 1982. Steve, if I remember correctly, cleared Shacken. Uh, my memories of you were always uh, very fond. Maybe we've had a handful, two or three conversations, uh, you know, over the last 40-some years. But I do remember you being, uh, you know, one of the good guys and funny, hilarious, uh, but also very serious at the same time. So thank you so much for joining us today. I want to, you know, talk a little bit about your background, what your memories are of the CBOE as a floor trader, and let's just get right into it. All right, man. Okay. Good. All right. So, Steve, take us back to day one. You know, where where were you born? Where did you grow up? What were your hobbies? What made the CBOE seem interesting? Who backed you? Like, let's kind of get into some of those early days of the '70s when. Black Shoals model was new and people were trying to figure it out. And the exchange was started on in some coffee shop, basically a small office down the street. Um, so let's, let's talk about those days and what you remember. Well, uh, I was born in the South side of Chicago. And uh, when the great white flight occurred from South shore, um, we moved up to Evanston, Skokie area. Uh, I, finished up my education uh, at Evans Township High School, went to MIT and majored in computer science, and then decided, okay, so I need an MBA to make money. Because nobody ever thought they'd make a lot of money writing computer programs. <laughs> so uh, in the middle of my first year at, uh, at the business school at Chicago, uh, I heard that there was an opportunity to go abroad for a year, and I never turned down the opportunity to travel. So I, I earned a um, master in science degree in management science, which is sort of like applying computer science to the business world mm -hmm. from the London School of Economics. When I came back to finish up my MBA, my dad had a buddy of his from grammar school named Jerry Hadoff. Jerry was a member of the Board of Trade. And from time to time, when I was in high school and uh, at MIT, Jerry was like a second father to me. Jerry would call me up and say, hey, have you got a few bucks? I mind you, I'm a high school student. Have you got a few bucks? I think we ought to be in, and it was soybeans or wheat. I mean, you couldn't trade gold back then. I mean, that's how long ago this was. And I always gave Jerry money and I always ended up with a little bit more. You know, I'd give him $1,500 and I'd get back $1,800. And I liked this. This was a good deal. So one day when I was back from London, just barely back from London, Jerry said, I want to have lunch with you. I have an idea. Can you come down to the Board of Trade? He was on the floor. So I came down there and... Uh, he took me out to lunch. 
and he gave me this enormous, I wish I had it here, like this enormous stack of papers, okay? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't see these. But I mean, it was like three phone books worth of research on options and the his, history of the options market. And uh -huh. it was like, what's an option? I never heard of that. So he said, well, I want you to read all this and then we're gonna have lunch again. So I started reading through all of this stuff and it was a very interesting over-the-counter market. And it was about to start up as the CBOE. One of the documents in there that he wanted me to focus on was a little research project that two guys at the University of Chicago, actually one was at Chicago, one was at MIT, Fisher Black and Myron Schultz. And they had come up with this crazy mathematical formula to predict the theoretical value of an option. Now, it wasn't the options that would be trading at CBOE because their model predicted a European settlement option. But wait, 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 CBOE had European settlement options? I thought that no. didn't happen until. No, oh, their model. The model was European. Right. The model was European, right? Not American yeah. style. Okay. Right. Right. So I went back and I sat down with Jerry, and Jerry said, So what do you think about this? I said, well, if this model is accurate and if people are just pricing these based on, you know, betting at the racetrack, I think there might be some edge in this because, you know, University of Chicago School of Business, which wasn't Booth then, it was all about efficient markets. Mm -hmm. and, and if you could find an inefficiency in a market, you could exploit it. So... He said, well, these guys are at the University of Chicago. Why don't you talk to them and see what they know? So I just walked up and knocked on the door. They were in the top floor of one of these old Gothic buildings that Rockefeller had built in the 1890s. Uh -huh. And they were across the hall from each other, like in the attic. <laughs> and they were just really happy that any student had ever heard of this paper. And what year was this? 1973 okay it was uh actually it may have been late 72 okay mm -hmm. and they said well we're looking for somebody to figure out whether the initial data at the cboe actually predicts you know matches up with our model. Actually, I'm wrong. This was 73-ish, end of 74, because I graduated in 74. So I said, well, that sounds like an interesting project. And they said, well, would you like your degree with honors? And I said, sure, why not? So we, we hit a little agreement that I would uh, get the data. They had the data. Mm -hmm. I would process the data, put it all together, estimate the volatility of the stocks, which there's a thing called CRISP, still there at the UFC, which is just mountains of data now, wasn't so much then, predict, predict the volatility of these 16 issues and look at the closing prices every night, closing price of the stock and see if they were close. So I spent about three months at the data center, most of my off hours, and I came back and I had some numbers and we sat down and uh, the model wasn't tracking the CBOE prices. Everything was too expensive. 
everything. Nothing was cheap. Now we only had calls. Right. Everything was expensive. So they checked it out and they didn't find any errors. They didn't think I had misestimated volatility in a way that would explain it. So they said, great, I want you to write this up as a paper for your honors paper. And I wrote it up. And the first draft they hated because I didn't know how to write a research mm -hmm. paper at their level. So we, we fixed it up and we put it in good order. And they said, this is great. We're going to publish this. And I said, no, you're not. They said, excuse me? I said, I agreed I would write a paper. I agreed I would do the work. My trade is done. I bought a seat at this place. I'm going to make the market a little more efficient selling uh -huh. the hell out of this stuff. <laughs> and uh, I bothered, I borrowed uh, $40,000 from my dad. Which, which was, was a huge money. amount of money back then. Small fortune. It's like a, it's like a half a million today, probably, for it being was, 20 years well, old. It was twice what I had paid for my MBA. Yeah. <laughs> Just to put it in perspective, including the trip to London for a year. And uh, I bought a seat for $30,100, which was the high kick at that point in time, <laughs> price that was never seen again. Uh, and I bought a desk and a chair so that I could have a little office at home. Mm -hmm. And I uh, kept my account open at the comp center at the University of Chicago and kept running theoretical values. And I would do delta neutral spreads, selling the stuff that were more overpriced. I mean, I, you couldn't afford to buy stock because of the commissions. Mm -hmm. It was before 1975. You buy one share, a hundred shares. Seventy-five dollars or a hundred dollars in commissions. Sixty. It was five eight. Sixty-two dollars and fifty cents. Okay. So there's 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 no vigor left in in that trade. Right. So I started doing it, and for the first few months, I did very poorly because I was trying to guess which way the market was going, and I wasn't figuring out the spreads right. Mm -hmm. Then I started getting it right. And I every month, 10 grand, 10 grand, 10 grand. I mean, plus or minus a thousand dollars. It was, and I was just, I wasn't trading all 16 stocks around the floor. I was in one or two stocks and I wasn't taking enormous risk. I wasn't selling tons of out of the money stuff naked. There were people who did that and they did very well because we're in the middle of an oil embargo. Uh, Bottom line is, uh, about a year later, I decided I needed a computer. Now, mind you, the PC hadn't been invented yet. Yes. Okay. Correct. So I bought a digital equipment PDP-11 computer, which if you're familiar with computer racks, it's a two-rack computer, about two of these bookcases behind me, <laughs> wide. Okay, taller than me and 30 inches deep. What did that set you back? What, what did that must have been? 40 grand. That was 40 grand. Okay. Um, it had, it had 64 K of memory. Okay. 64 K. That's hilarious. It had five meg of hard drive. Okay. All you're ever going to need for 40 grand, yeah. all you're ever going to need. It had something called 
an acoustic modem, which literally you put your telephone handset in and where your speaker was, there was a microphone and where your mouthpiece was, there was a speaker. And I called up Dow Jones News Service every night to get the closing price high and low. And just like, and like out of the movie, The Matrix, where you would take the handset and put it into the cradle and it would connect using that screechy modem sound and we would download our data. I mean, and, yeah. and with it, go ahead, I, I'm sorry. And, well, you know, I, I took the historical data I had from the UFC and I took the new data and I started coming up with what I think were very ingenious ways to estimate volatility, okay? It wasn't just the last 30 days. It was the last year with a weighted average and I massaged it. I massaged it until the overpricing was predictable, mm -hmm. okay? But it was predictably overpriced based on changes in volatility. Then I had to adjust for early exercise. Then I had to adjust for dividends. Right. Okay. And now I have this $40,000 contraption. And I am now, uh, the input output, by the way, there were no keyboards and monitors then. It was a teletype. I mean, literally, the ones they were using at Western Union. Right. Okay. You type on this big, tall box, and it would print out on a roll of paper. And I'd go to the floor with these rolls of paper for my stocks. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'd look at them and people would look at me like, what are you doing? There were one or two other people on the floor that had little pieces of paper. We never talked about those pieces of paper okay. to each other, but I knew what they were doing and they knew what I was doing and we weren't going to share that. And we pretty much didn't, uh, we didn't cross borders. Let's put it that way. You were in the Teledyne pit or what pits? What no, no. You are when you I started. was in, well, I started out in Northwest Airlines, Upjohn, and RCA. And then eventually when we moved to the new trading floor in 75, I ended in Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount Studios. That was mm -hmm. the big play. They owned Paramount Studios and New Jersey Zinc, quite a combination, um, uh, and a shipping line. Um, Kennecott Copper and Texas Gulf. Okay. With the last two of which didn't trade very much. It was really all Gulf and Western. And Gulf and Western was probably the most active thing traded on the floor for two or three years because it, it just kept doubling and splitting and doubling and splitting. But weird things happened. Um, I figured out because it, Gulf and Western was the first split that SIBO experienced. It was a two for one split. And I had done the studies that showed that when stocks split, not a stock dividend, mm -hmm. but when the option contract splits into many, the volatility almost always goes up because an eighth is still an eighth. Got it. So, so an eighth is a bigger percentage. Gulf and Western was splitting two for one and I knew that I wanted to be long volatility, but I also knew that stocks tended to rally after they split. And these, these could be countervailing activities or offsetting activities. So in the days leading up to the split, the position limits were gonna double, 
the number of options I would have were going to double. I bought time spreads. I was limit long time spreads, slightly out of the money, thinking it might rally some. And it worked. Big. It worked. The stock split. I mean, I think these spreads were a buck and a half before the split. And the next day I had twice as many of them and they were a little over a dollar. I mean, like 50, 60% overnight, mm -hmm. very quietly. So you're long a time spread, which means that you're long uh, a little bit more Vega volatility because you're long, you own the back month, but they're out of the money call spreads, time spreads. So as the stock rallies, you're moving into that short area, which theoretically should expire and decay very quick. So you're long and volatility. Yeah. And even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't go up, I've got a lot of downside protection because I'm long the farther out. Yeah. And it's going to go down slower, especially since it was close to expiration. I mean, it wasn't like a week before expiration. Got it. But remember, we had quarterlies back then. Yes. So you're talking July and April. If it's if it's sometime in March, you've got one month and four months. And that's why they balloon. Well, once I sorted that out and there were more splits around the floor, I would give floor brokers orders because I didn't want anybody to know who it was. And I would buy time spreads. Not a lot. I buy a hundred here. Um, I think Teledyne had a big three to one split at some point in time. That was very nice. Um, I tell you where I did really, really well. Um, digital equipment was traded on the Amex before the, the wars. Remember the wars in 76 and 77? The, the, uh, there were no dual listings. Oh, right, right, exactly. Then. And then uh, we had a stock, um, God, it was Magic, a mortgage guarantee company out of Milwaukee. I don't remember that one. Amex, you do? I don't, no, I don't remember Magic. Nobody cared about it except we, we, we wanted to list it. And the Amex listed it, and the SEC didn't stop us. So we had picked it, and then the Amex said, well, we're going to trade that too. So Jim Kipp, who was the uh, vice chairman, had a big meeting at the Union League Club and got all of the floor members over there and said, this is war. Okay? I mean, no, I mean, seriously, this, this is war. Mm -hmm. He gave us a list of their top six issues at the Amex and we, we, um, we, we cross-listed them. We duly listed them. Right. One of them was digital equipment, which is a company I was in love with because I had $40,000 worth of their product sitting in my condo, my apartment. Right. <laughs> so, so, and I knew the company because I had worked on their stuff when I was at MIT. It's a, it was a great little company. So uh, it was splitting three to one. So I was buying up as a customer, lots and lots and lots of time spreads before it was announced as, as a dual list. Mm -hmm. So I came in loaded with inventory, the thing split three for one, and I came close to making 70 or 80% on my money on this three to one split. 
It was insane. And, and we were we were just trading incredible quantities of the stuff, bouncing them back and forth. Um, it was a great life. So how did you transition then as we get a little closer into the 80s, more and more, you know, we had a Monchek Weber, a Schwarzschild, Microhedge. We had all these other computers were being purchased by clearing for members and held in a common area so the traders could use them. When did you begin feeling the crunch or more and more people learning how to uh, use theoretical values? And how did you, most people don't, pe people can theoretically understand what it means to be short gamma, but until it happens to you and you lose five figures or six figures in a couple of seconds because of a stock move, you cannot appreciate how quickly these things sneak up on you. So just give us a little bit of background on how you managed to avert or avoid the big you know, hurt and positions. And how did your strategies perhaps change as time went on as we're moving into the 80s in the, in the great bull market? You know, it just rates 15% going down to five. Well, you know, the Greeks didn't really exist in people's minds right. early on. It was, it was all about Delta. And, and everybody was talking about being Delta neutral, Delta neutral. My, my split strategy had nothing to do with Delta neutrality. It had to do with the Greeks. We didn't have good formulas to calculate them like we do today. I calculated them the hard way. I calculated the theoretical value. And then I said, okay, if volatility goes up one point, what would it do to the theoretical value? If it goes down one point, what would it do? And guess what? You've now figured out gamma, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And you uh, theta, okay, a day passes. How much is this going to drop? So I had on my sheets by 77 or 78, I had the Greeks. I didn't know what they were called. Right. But wait, but, uh, let's just go back a second. So the, if, if, if the volatility goes up 1% or down percent, how the option response to that is vega, right? Well, uh, no. Hold on a second. You so, call oh. it vega. I call it kappa because I think there is no vega in the Greek alphabet. Okay. Um, gamma is the change of the value delta in one one dollar move or one point. Right. Move. I'm talking right. about the change of price. Got it. Oh, okay. Uh, All right, gamma. Got it. Okay. Right. Okay. So, you know, you, would you call vega? I call kappa, which is the second is is, is the derivative of volatility mm -hmm. for for that movement. So, but but theta. Everybody had kind of figured out theta because you see it every day. Yes. You know, you look at yesterday's sheets, you look at today's sheets. Every morning you come in, you're like, huh, okay. There's my theta came in today. Well, you look at today's sheets and yesterday's sheets at the same $25 price for the stock and theta's right in your face. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the one thing I never, never was comfortable with and it probably cost me a lot of money was what was called backspreading. Mm-hmm. Now, this is in the world of calls, selling a deep in the money call and buying multiple out of the money calls, sort of the, the reverse of a ratio spread. Mm -hmm. uh, I was never comfortable having theta work against me. 
And it was, it was just one simple thing. I never saw a clock move backwards. Now, it doesn't mean I think you can just sell stuff and, pl and play the, the theta game because God knows we've seen takeovers. We've seen lots of reasons yep. not to do that. But, but time is the only thing that is absolutely predictable. So I tended to stay away from situations where time would hurt me. Sure. And how was your relationship with your clearing firm? If I remember you cleared Shacken, but that might not have always been true. How, I, did you I, have I started, to teach them a lesson of, were you called into the office, you know, up at Jim Carney's office saying, Steve, what the, look at your, your net liquidation value. Look at your margin. Look at, we need you to cough up money. Our, our, our risk parameters are blowing up. Can you even help us write, rewrite and relearn what, what our risk parameters should be? I mean, you were like ahead of the game. Well, yeah, once I wasn't. I started out, um, I, I told you this fellow, Jerry Hadoff, got me in the business. Mm -hmm. And the deal was I'd buy a seat and the two of us would go around the floor with all these sheets and we'd make a lot of money. Um, my, I bought my seat on April 1st, 1974. The exchange had been open a little less than a year. And two weeks later, while I was going through the training, they actually trained you then and passing the tests, uh, Jerry called me and he wanted to have lunch. He told me he was retiring and moving to Guadalajara. I was on my own. Great town. Yeah. But very well, different in 1974. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was pretty much on my own. Uh, he had me clear through a company called John S. Morrison Company, which was an old line board of trade grain house where Jerry cleared his business. Okay. And he introduced me to Mr. Morris, who I think was about 90 years old when I met him, who had, you know, stereo hearing aids, nicest guy on earth, but he knew Jerry and Jerry knew me and that's all he needed to know. Right. And back then, if you were at the Board of Trade and you had a debit in your account, that's okay. If they knew you, if they liked you, you know, if you weren't doing crazy stuff, they'd give you a chance to get even. Yep. Okay. So I never really caused Mr. Morris any problems. But eventually, they decided that they didn't need to be in this business. They weren't going to be a Goldberg. They weren't going to be a First Options. They weren't going to be a Sheck. And mm -hmm. they had done it as good citizens of the Board of Trade. So uh, I, I met with Jim Carney. Uh, I think by then I was on the SIBO Board of Directors. So, you know, Sheck had a bit of a reputation for having a lot of the crazy people. I didn't know that. And I cleared Shekin because I had my first relationship with a, a trader that backed me, but Shekin, which is the default. I had no say in it, but when was that? Uh, I started trading in 1982. So Dan Asher oh, yeah. backed me. Sure, he I know. Me, he lent me 20 grand, right? To yeah. put me in a brown badge. Shekin right. uh, was a Jim Carney, Lee Casty, you know, all great. I met my wife there. I mean, it's yeah. uh, yeah. all good, good people. Good people. At any rate, um, I met with Jim Carney. And they were trying to, um, I don't know if the right term is improve their image, but they wanted somebody who was kind of part of the establishment, who had been around for the while, who'd been successful, you know, who wasn't likely to blow them off the face of the earth. And they were very happy to take me in. And we worked on a really favorable commission deal. So I was very happy there. Mm -hmm. 
fast forward to the worst day, no, second worst day I've ever had trading. Um, I was doing box spreads when puts came out. Conversions, reversals, and boxes. Yep. Safe. Good arbitrage. You know, I had a bit of money in my account, so I was earning good money on it, especially when interest rates were high. Yep. You know, 20% T-bill rates help. Uh, and I had on the IBM 240-280 box. Big. Okay. Yep. And the stock went from 270 to 260 to 250. And that's when I learned about early exercise of puts. Now, we knew this could happen, but we didn't know that a $40 box spread could go to 43 really fast. And so I was squeezed. I, I in two or three days, I was down to reserves. All my money, all my money wasn't in my trading account, but all of my trading money was pretty much gone. And Dave, you you were you were short the two forty two eighty box, and your two eighty puts were getting deeper and deeper in the money, with the potential of early exercise. Got it? No, no, it was beyond potential. (laughs) Okay, I'm a shareholder in IBM. Not all of them, but some of them. But I mean, the the spread was out to forty three dollars. I was not happy, and. I knew Dave Goldberg really well because I had cleared through Dave Goldberg on the New York Futures Exchange. And I cleared through Dave Goldberg. Uh, I had set up a specialist operation on the Chicago Stock Exchange and Dave cleared me over there. Uh-huh. So Dave kind of knew me. I, mean, I wasn't a big customer. And he came on the floor the morning of the big drop in my equity. And he came over to me and said, Steve, is this a G-rated program? Uh, it's for people. I, I set the, the setting for 18 or older. But so it's Steve, you you look whatever like, you want. Steve, you look like shit. <laughs> okay. And I just handed Dave my sheets. I had an $800,000 haircut. And back then, three to one, two to one was kind of when clearing firms got worried. Mm-hmm. Jack and never was concerned about me. I had an 800 and something thousand dollar haircut and the equity in my account was $96 and change. Oh my gosh. I mean, right. you know, another hundred dollars and I'm in liquidation. Right. Okay. And Dave said, now I know why you look like shit. Right. Because we could see the, the drop from the day before. He, he said, so what's your plan? And I said, well, I think I ought to get out of these positions. He said, yeah, but what's your plan? How are you going to, how did you make money? How are you going to make money? And we talked a little bit and he said, okay. And he gave me one of his board of trade trading cards, David Goldberg. He says, write your trading rules. And I started writing trading rules because People who survived had trading rules, mm-hmm. but I had like let things get out too far. I could I could have covered these positions when they were going against me. And Dave said, "Okay, those are good trading rules. I like those trading rules. Now, tell me what percentage of the time you're going to adhere to them." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, if these are your hundred percent trading rules, the first time you break them, you might as well burn the card." <laughs> 
He said, so give yourself, give yourself some wiggle room, but draw some limits so that you protect yourself. And I said, well, how about 95%? He said, that's a good number. He said, take this card, put it in your pocket, do what you have to to get out of these positions, go back to your trading rules. If Shekin doesn't want to clear you anymore, I will. And Dave Goldberg turned me around. Dave Goldberg saved me. That's that's terrific. I've heard wonderful things about Dave Goldberg in his relationship with helping people that had tough times. Uh, I actually sat on a board with his uh, with with Marianne, his wife, a number of years ago, and saw his son Andy, because Dave right started the Burling Bank, which now is on the first floor of the Board of Trade. So it was just a great a great guy, wonderful wonderful guy, from what I hear. I in fact I I know Andy. Uh, tried to get him to clear. Um, I do consulting. We tried to get him to clear a crypto business, and they. Oh, stop it. So then the blockchain advisor is the perfect platform for you. This is, all right, we're going to have to do coffee, Steve. I kid you not. I kid you not. At any rate, um, you know, that's what it was like back then. It was, it was crazy. I mean, I was head of the new products committee. Uh, we brought on currency options. I traded those for two years. Didn't work. Uh, we tried bond options. Didn't work. But we also tried OEX. Right. That was that kind works. of successful. That was kind of successful. For sure. Yeah. All right. So, so let's talk about, uh, you know, let's talk, we're going into the eighties. Uh, were you there for the 87 crash or had you left already at that time? <laughs> that was my worst day. Okay. <laughs> okay. My, my that, too, but that, that was, that was my actually 86 was my worst day. The, uh, the, the bull market not, opened the gap opening in October of 86. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had just started trading in OEX. And it seemed to me like it was short of, sort of like shooting cats that are in a box, closed up. You just shoot and you hit a cat, right? It just seemed very easy to me. And prior to that, I had never seen a day when the Dow had gone down more than 40 points. So the deal was when the Dow's down 40, you, you buy calls, you sell puts, you do whatever, you get long. That day, the Dow went down 70 points before it rallied. And by the time it got down 70 points, I was short boxcar numbers of three consecutive strikes of puts. I was having a really bad day. And, you know, I kind of knew what my positions were. I stepped out at one point and just like added everything up but stuff i had sold at five was trading at 10 stuff i had sold at one was trading at three i was and i was not doing well let's just put it that way and i'm the new guy in the crowd i've been there a few weeks and of course nobody's talking to you everybody's like a little crazy then i'm sure some people were like making a lot of money crt was in the crowd at the time and they had I don't know, five, 10 people in there, all looking at the same pieces of paper. And if your price was their price, they would do whatever size you wanted because they wanted market share. Give them a number. Right. So I remember one of the strikes, one of the strikes, I had started selling at five and on the screen, it was nine and a quarter, no, it was nine and three quarters, 10 and a half. I mean, that's a crazy wide market right. for OEX. 
okay? And there was a broker from named D. I want to say Dean Witter, but I don't remember if they were still around. But D sat sort of next to me, and D started asking for a market in these things, and I was short. I don't know, maybe two, three hundred of them at the time. And D asked for a market, and nobody's responding. I'm not even responding. I don't want to sell anything. And she's saying, come on, somebody give me a market. And I, and I don't want to buy them. I don't want to sell them. I say 10 and a quarter, 11. Nobody else is making a market. D says 10 and a quarter, 11. I said, yeah. She said, I'll buy them at 11. I said, how many do you have? And she said, 941. <laughs> I'll never forget. I'll never forget that number. Right. 941. And I said, sold. Shut up. Okay. Dollar price averaging. You know, th this thing's going to bounce at some point, hopefully today. Yes. 941. And like everybody around me, Gil Cantor, all these people are looking at me like, what is he doing to hedge these? To, if they had asked me, I would say, you see this stuff Praying. above? Right. It's thin and clear, <laughs> right? Air, 941, boom, sold. And that was about 30 seconds before the bottom. And then all of a sudden, all of these people are, can I have some? I said, no. Mm -hmm. Well, what's your market? My market? My market's nine and a half, ten and a quarter. Right. <laughs> and Everything fell like a rock. All the puts fell like a rock. And when it got to the point, and I had no idea where my PL was, mm -hmm. no idea at all. I knew what my position was pretty much. And when it, the rally kind of started to top out, I went over to the CRT guy next to me. And I asked him what his market in, in those was. And it was, I don't know, seven and a half, eight. And I said, I'll buy him. And he said, how many you want to do? And I said, you know, 1,476 or some right. crazy number. It was a crazy number. Yeah. He said, okay. And I said, now the next strike, what's your market in that? <laughs> and, you know, I, I bought those back at like five. And then I bought the other ones back. I lost money on two of the strikes, but on 941, I sold up in the sky. Right. I left the crowd and I started figuring out, make sure my position was flat. I didn't figure out my PL. I didn't want to know. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was flat. And I went downstairs and I checked my code in and I left. I dry heaved and then I went no, home. No, no, no. It, you know, it's done. Yeah. In the morning, we'll find out. And I came in the next morning and I had made $10,000 on the day. And I, and I, and I had a 10 lot position, which was a miracle that it was that close. And I gave an order to liquidate the 10 lot to Bob Donnelly. And he said, why don't you just come in here and do it? I said, I will never walk in there again. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's my heroin. Okay. I can't do this. Nope. This is, this is not where I want to be. Right. It was a good run while it lasted. 
All right, so Steve, tell us about your run for office. You had an interest in politics. You made a run for senator, US governor. Senate. Tell me a little bit about that. U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. In 1974 or 84, I ran for the U.S. Senate as a libertarian against Chuck Percy and Paul Simon. Oh, boy. I, took, uh, I took seven months off. I owned my own airplane and I flew that airplane, I'm guessing 250 hours within the state of Illinois mm -hmm. in seven months. I mean, I went to Peoria more times than you can imagine. But we visited every place. Uh, we, we got on TV. The, the most interesting part of it was the conservative caucus was really big back then. That's when conservatives were really conservatives and, mm -hmm. and not Russians. Uh, and they, uh, you're smiling a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Um, they hated Chuck Percy because he was a three-term liberal Republican. They hated Paul Simon more, okay? Right. And they, they wanted to find somebody they could put their hands around who agreed with them on a lot of issues. I didn't agree with them on abortion, but that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not bashful. I contacted them. And I said, how'd you like to have somebody you can support in the state of Illinois to get Chuck Percy unelected, because that's what they really wanted to do. Uh, if, if Percy had been reelected, he would have been chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and they did not want him there, they wanted Jesse Elms. So I flew out with a bunch of people wearing suits from the floor, because you have to look like you had a campaign organization. And these guys bought me lunch at, at their place in Virginia. And we talked and they said, well, you know, we have a lot in common here, but what are you going to say about abortion? I said, why would anybody's right mind in 1984 bring up abortion? Really? I mean, all you're going to do is piss off half the people. Right. So, you know, I, I told him I would just avoid the issue. Roe v. Wade was roughly 10 years prior to that, roughly 74. Yeah. Ronald yeah. Reagan, a conservative, you know, I mean, it was still very as it is today, it's an issue that's just not going away, but, but go ahead. Right. At any rate, um, I got back to Chicago and uh, a week later, they said, a bunch of us are flying to Chicago and we're going to have a press conference on this date at this time. You cannot be present. But if you happen to be um, at Nick's Fish Market at, uh, at one o'clock, you might bump into us. Okay, well, I knew what that meant. They were going to endorse me, but they weren't gonna contribute a penny to my campaign. They were gonna do an independent expenditure. So we really couldn't, as a matter of law, coordinate anything. And sure enough, they came in and all of a sudden, uh, all the TV stations in Chicago that didn't wanna to talk to me were calling. So I, I had a friend come in from California who managed the campaign. Uh, we raised a lot of money and we bought ads. I, I will tell you, uh, you remember Bob Asher? Sure. So Bob was a huge fundraiser for Paul what? Simon. Right. And, and Bob, I think, was also on the board of the 
the Jewish Political Action Committee, I think. APAC, American Israeli Political think, Action all right, Committee. Something like that. Mm -hmm. so, so my campaign manager, Marshall Fritz, I, I had 20 people living in my house who flew in from around the country. Libertarians who actually thought it'd be fun if a libertarian was actually- Did you raise more money from libertarians or from the conservatives? Well, I'll tell you. Okay. I'll, well, I, no, the conservatives spent a quarter million dollars, but I didn't raise it. They okay. sent out mass mailings, you know, multicolor mass mailings to every every voter in the state of Illinois. And they ran. They, they did wonderful things for me, and and I never talked to them. It was it was all legit. Marshall Fritz, my campaign manager, talks to me one day when I come home because he's sleeping with twenty other people in my house, and Marshall says, "Do you know a guy named Bob Asher?" I said, "Yeah, I know Bob Asher." Says, you trust him? I said, yeah, he's on the floor. I trust everybody he's on the broker floor. on the floor, yeah. Unless they screwed me once, right. right? He said, well, Bob Asher called and he wanted to know if you were planning on, we were planning on running ads and um, what kind of ad we would run if we had a bunch of funding. And I said, well, what did Bob indicate? Because I'm sure I know what he's doing. And I'm sure he know I know what he wants. He said, well, Bob wanted to know if you had a big influx of funding, if you would consider running ads that were silent on Paul Simon. This said nothing bad about Paul Simon, but talked about favorably about yourself and negatively and or negatively about Chuck Percy. And I said, oh, I don't have a problem with that at all. Okay. So he said, okay, well, I'm going to call Bob back tomorrow. And he said, we should start producing ads. So I flew down to Quincy because the TV station there said they'd produce my ad for free. If, uh, if I ran $250 worth of ads in Quincy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I know it was done. wonderful. And yeah, done. I mean, it was, it was the gas in the airplane. Sold, right? <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. So a, a week, my sister was in advertising. So she did the buys. She asked me all these questions about, you know, what age group we're targeting, you know, typical advertising questions, to which my response was, how the hell should I know? Right. I said, buy time. We have 10 days till the election. Be visible. I remember a courier came out to the house and brought Marshall Fritz 41 $1,000 checks. That was the maximum you could contribute. All drawn on different accounts at the same SNL in California. <laughs> this is, I mean, the, this is like a story you would think somebody wrote, right? Uh -huh. But there were 41 $1,000 checks. Uh, obviously, APAC had access to these people's money and they went limit on 41 times. So now we have to spend $41,000 in a week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but this it is was 1984. It's like half a million dollars today. I mean. no, CNN, half hour, prime time, national, $200. I got $41,000 to spend. Right. I dumped it on my sister. I said, Put it where people will see it. Okay? Just put it where people will see it. Now. <laughs> yes, now. 
So it, 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 she, she bought the Tonight Show. She bought uh, Sunday Football. But the best thing she did uh, that I laugh about was Dick Ogilvie, the former governor of Illinois, was on our board. Dick Thomas, who was the president of First Chicago at the time, was on our board. Dick Thomas, nicest guy you'd ever want to know. He would sit next to me at the board meetings and ask me, what is this about? Because he didn't have, you know, he didn't have time to. Right. Give me the cliff notes, the executive summary. Ogilvy hated my ass because I was running against his buddy, Chuck Percy. The day before the election, I walk into a board meeting and the, our chairman, Wally Auk, and Dick Ogilvy are on the other side of the word, uh, room speaking loudly. And Wally and Dick live in the same building. They lived at, is it 1040 Lakeshore, the condo building. Okay. And uh, they were good buddies. And one of them said to the other, you know, I was watching and whatever is the, the Chicago Sunday morning local political affairs program, uh, or no, meet the press, you know, the, the national program, but in the local market is where my sister bought. And she said, I turned on Channel 5 and there was given. And Ogilvy said, yeah, me too. That was disgusting. So I turned to two. Fucking give it was there too. They turned to seven and I was there. She bought, she bought that stretch of time so she'd get everybody. And I walked in and I said, I guess the advertising worked, guys. Everybody saw it. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we got uh, we got one and a quarter percent of the votes, which was at that time a record for a libertarian in a statewide race. Uh, Fifty nine thousand seven hundred and seventy seven votes. It was fun. It was a learning curve. Sure. All right. So what about today, Steve? Take us to, you know, 2000 and beyond or like what has occupied your time? Where do you find your interest in your heart? What do you obviously you're, you're sharp as a tech. You're still staying engaged in learning. This has been an incredibly delightful conversation. But let us, you know, tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. If you can well, share I'll that. Go I'll go fast forward. Um, I got divorced in uh, 87. I had three kids and the kids lived with me half the time. So I worked from home from 87 to, I don't know, in the nineties. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, taking care of the kids, doing a little trading and managing the specials business. I'd started up at the Chicago stock exchange, which became my bread and butter. Okay. Uh, that, pretty much ended with reg nms because you didn't have specialists anymore on regional exchanges um, i worked uh, a bit i did some consulting i did some consulting for the stock exchange in london on their options program um, i worked for the boston options exchange for a while i worked for a uh, prop trading firm in chicago for a while uh, and then in 2010, having been on the Chicago Stock Exchange as a member from 79 to 2006, John Karen, their president, reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to come on board. 
I said, what do you want me to do? He said, we need someone who understands trading and understands computers, which is, that's me, right? We want somebody to write an automated system to test our matching engine to make sure we're compliant with the rules. Completely different application of computers to trading, but it said, that sounded like fun. So I spent eight years at the Chicago Stock Exchange. Uh, within a year and a half, I continued to do the systems compliance stuff. Within a year and a half, I was vice president for strategic planning because they had no plan. And I kept coming up with ideas and they didn't have anybody to run them by who, you know, to, to develop them. So I did both. Um, the Chicago Stock Exchange uh, was under contract to be acquired by a Chinese firm and some U.S. investors, including myself, uh, and Trump killed that, end up being bought by NICE or ICE. Mm -hmm. uh, the, in the eight years I was there, the stock price went up from at a dollar to 104 on the wow. Uh, we had Chicago stock, NICE has 10 patents that have my name on them for trading innovations. How exciting. Okay. Largely, we think NICE bought us because they didn't want us to implement the patents, one of which was an asymmetric speed bump in the equities market. Uh, in the last two years, I've been doing consulting in the crypto space. First for a, with John Karen, who became the CEO at the Chicago Stock Exchange. John's my good friend. Uh, so we, we do uh, consulting in tandem in the crypto space. Uh, the first firm we worked for wasn't a good fit. They, we were concerned as to whether or not they could put things together. Sure. So we're now working for a New York-based client. Um, and we're, I can't tell you everything we're doing, but we expect to have a crypto offering that will set the bar. Well, we you're have, talking my language. I mean, I, five, I am so five, far down this rabbit hole of cryptocurrency, I can't. We've applied for five patents, two of which, I mean, I'm 10 for 10 on patents, which is hard in business methods patents. We filed for five just to plant a flag, but I think we're going to take two to the finish line. Um, and if we have them, uh, we, will have, we will have things that nobody has and that everybody's going to want. And do you think this will come out as a cryptocurrency exchange with, and you don't have to say it, you know, don't reveal anything with the patents there, or are you talking about an actual decentralized token that will have some no, no, no. governance? Or, okay. We're not, we're not in, in what I'll call the fringe space. Okay. okay. We're not, we're not creating tokens. We're talking about having a place to trade. Got it. A place to trade, uh, which because of these patents will be more efficient and less costly. And so when I was on the, when I was on the CBO board, the thing we kept hearing over and over again from the wirehouses was cheaper, faster, better. Okay, yeah. I will tell you what we're talking about. Won't be faster. It'll be faster than a decentralized exchange because you know 
a, a tortoise is faster than a decentralized exchange in terms of settlement. But cheaper and faster, you bet. And so what, briefly then, let's close with this question. What, when did you learn about cryptocurrency and blockchain technology and what made you go in this direction? Because for me, once I saw how price and settlement and transaction all occur in one, one action, I, I thought about the CBOE and OCC and stopping trading at three o'clock, three fifteen, and this whole settlement checkout trade thing. It, it was an instant light went on for me. I mean, I got I got it very quickly. What yeah, about you? I get it too. Um, I don't. I would separate two aspects. One is use of the blockchain as a replacement for OCC or DTCC, whatever, just right. as a clearance and settlement mechanism um, that's, uh, you can't tamper with it, okay? And that's on one point of view. Mm -hmm. And the other is trading these things, Right. okay? You don't have to trade these things and clear and settle them on the blockchain, okay? And you see that in the centralized exchanges where people deposit the underlying assets, but the underlying assets sit in a common tank, if you will, as collateral, and they trade back and forth, mm -hmm. but they don't change necessarily change ownership out on the blockchain. So to me, those centralized exchanges that do that are like casinos. And I don't mean in terms of gambling and speculation. Right. You walk into a casino and you give them your dollars. You get a bunch of chips. And now you use these chips. You go wherever you want to, this table, that table. And when you're all done, you go back to the cage and you get your dollars. Okay? Right. The dollars never change hands. The chips change hands. Okay? And that's where the market could be, could be and is quite efficient. The fact that the blockchain supporting Bitcoin is consuming the same amount of electricity as the country of Chile concerns me, <laughs> okay? A, this decentralized method for clearing and settling is very expensive, okay? If it's done with proof of work like that, yes, but yes, proof and of can, work. And we can get into this conversation on another episode, but like the Lightning Network is very similar to what you're discussing is that you deposit money in, in an account, you open up a channel, you're, you're buying and selling and transacting, and then you kind of settle up at the end of the evening, which is kind of like getting your money back for the chips. But um, we can, we can have, I'm, we're going to do a second episode on that if you'd like. I'd love, I'd love to, to talk I, more I'd about I'd be happy that. to. But the, the, the key to me is that. If I can't trade all day, all night, and the next day, and the next night, when I want, and then not trade for five days, if I can do all that, and if I can avoid the expense of a blockchain transaction, yes, okay, then I'm a happy camper. Got it. But that means I have to trust the people who are holding the chips in the cage, okay? Right. So how do you end up, here's the $50,000 question, how do you end up with a system 
where you can trust the people holding the chips. If you can solve that problem, then you don't need the blockchain, except when you actually want the cash. Right. This is interesting paradox because blockchain is a, it's a trustless system. Like we don't want to trust the centralized system to hold our tokens, right? To, to hold that collateral. I, I see both sides, Steve, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make a case here for or against it or proof of stake uh, where you don't have that electricity, electrical cost, but still there's a interesting paradox here. And, and uh, we're going to have to talk about this on another episode. Steve, is there in, in closing, is there anything you'd like to shamelessly promote? Uh, any projects you want to talk about? Any way you want people to contact you or don't call me? Uh, so there- I'm going to give you something completely off the wall. Okay. You said anything I want to promote. Yes. It is uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It is Thursday. It is 3.36 p.m. Sunday morning, I'm going to be on a flight to Chicago, to Frankfurt, to Warsaw, to a little town in Poland I can't even pronounce. I am going for two weeks of volunteer work with the uh, World Central Kitchen, which a lot of people have heard of. It's it's an organization, uh, WCK.org, that's run by Jose Andres. You've probably heard about him. He's, He's a restaurateur very successful, but when there's an earthquake in Haiti or a hurricane in Puerto Rico, Jose and World Central Kitchen are on the ground feeding people. And I'm going there for two weeks. I'm not a chef. As I told them when I signed up, I will do whatever you want for two weeks. I will work whatever hours you want. I'm your bitch. These are my people. These are my people. Ukrainians and Poles, right? And we need to stay together. So you want to know if there's anything I want to ask for? Mm-hmm. Send money to World Central Kitchen. Do they accept yeah. cryptocurrency? Huh? Do they accept I, cryptocurrency? I don't know. They should have a QR code and start hitting that up on Twitter. I'm sure you guys will. I don't see know, it. but it'd be, it's too expensive to transfer crypto. <laughs> you, you have to give them chips. Uh, well, look at the Lightning Network and you can send money for virtually no cost, but that's another conversation. I, I hear you. Steve, this has been an incredibly delightful conversation. I am so glad that I had this opportunity to chat with you. It brings back a lot of memories, uh, certainly an amazing story that I, I didn't know. And I'm really glad that you shared that with us, your early days in, of wrapping your arms around the Black Shoals model and being able to tweak it. It's one thing to understand it. And then it's another thing to actually put it into use and work it in. My gosh, you were you were ground zero, man. You were you were right there, and that was really really an exciting time. The best days of my life for sure. Well, I had fun too. It was good. It was good while it lasted, but now the market's efficient. Damn it! I know. Damn it! We got to find some more inefficiencies somehow. All right, Steve. Thank you again, and I will chat with you. Uh, I'll no. be back in two weeks. All right, very good. Godspeed, and we will chat with you soon. Thanks. 
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Seneca Capital Management LLC, a state-registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Seneca Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.